The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Well, I am going to go ahead and get started with the message this evening. So if you'll open your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. And in our study, I want to continue our discussion of the Christian's obligation to be diligent to discern truth and error. Since the earliest days of the church, there have been false prophets who have tried to pervert or have perverted nearly every doctrine that we have in the Word of God. And we understand, as we've learned uh, in these past lessons, that false teachers don't actually work on their own, but they are under the operation or power of working in the behalf of the great deceiver who is Satan, whose object or desire is to destroy everything that's in the Christian faith. An interesting thing about Satan is his inability to discern, to make choices between things. Like, the, the devil never tries to make a decision, if I do this thing, will it be worse for me in the end, or will it be better for me if I do it? He never thinks like that. He's only interested in destroying the things of God. And so he sins so much, he's so deep into sin, that's all that he does, that he never restrains himself. And when Christ began his public ministry, Satan was there to oppose him, and he tempted Christ in, uh, you know, in Matthew chapter 4, as he tempted him, he tempted him in every way that's known to the, um, in ways that we can be tempted. Those temptations that Christ went through cover every scenario and he tried to get Christ to sin and to ruin the possibility that he could be the Messiah for his people. But Satan failed in that temptation, and his failure, though, was never a deterrent to him. Satan is always a pest. He keeps on trying, he just keeps on going, just keeps on bothering us. Sort of reminds me of the pigeons that I have around my house. Um, pigeons will not leave me alone for some reason. And they are demons from hell, I think, because they sit there and they coo all the time and mess all over everything. You can't get rid of them. I believe the Bible says somewhere, thou shalt not suffer a pigeon to live. I'm looking for that. But uh, Satan failed in that temptation. He failed in that temptation. But what he did, he just moved on to the next tactic. Uh, When Christ was teaching his apostles and told them that he was going to build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, he knew that the disciples were going to need some kind of encouragement because they were always going to be dealing with Satan who was trying to destroy the church. And so Christ said, I'm going to build my church and I promise that I'm going to build it on the foundation of my power and my authority and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. But Jesus knew Satan's character that he would attack the church in every way possible. He would try to destroy it. He works inside and outside trying to tear it down and keep it from its mission. And so it has been since the first day that Jesus said, I'm going to start my church. Satan began to work, and Satan has worked and worked, and he's tried to corrupt the church. And although he's never succeeded in destroying it, there are many times that the church has so much damage done to it that we're crippled. And we appear to be defeated. Satan fools people by perverting church doctrine to such an extent that now, nowadays, people are thoroughly confused about what the church is and who is the church. People just don't understand that any longer. 
And so what we see is many, many denominations, many different varieties of doctrine, and they exist because of the twisting and perversion of every doctrine that the church holds. Now, Christ made a unified church. That's the way that he started it. And anyone who thinks that the massive amount of divisions that we have in denominationalism today add up to a unified body of Christ is only fooling themselves. There is nothing that can unify God's people but doctrine. We have to be the same in doctrine. And doctrine goes beyond the teaching of salvation. There are many people in churches that think that that's where we ought to stop. We find somebody who agrees with us on the doctrine of salvation. We're fine. Then we can walk together. But we find that we're not fine. We don't walk together. We won't worship with one another. Because there are more doctrines than the doctrine of salvation. There is the doctrine of the church. And that doctrine is extremely important. And so we need to know what the church is. We must be able to define it. Satan tries to destroy all of these doctrines. Well, in this text of Acts chapter 2, we find a formula for keeping the church on the right track. Luke, the historian, writes this in these words in Acts chapter 6, verse number 37. Now, when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is unto you and to your children, and to all that are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. Then they that gladly received the word were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Now the key verse in this section relating to the survival of the church is verse number 42. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. And this is how you know if a church is true. Does it continue steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine? Is the doctrine of the church the same as the doctrines that the apostles taught? Now, the promise that the church would not fail, that it would not collapse, and the devil's attacks can't be true unless the church continues in the apostles' doctrine, unless it continues in the New Testament doctrine. Anything less than that is defeat. Now, if you care to read the 17th chapter of John later, you'll see that Jesus prayed for his apostles and he prayed for those that would believe through their teaching and he prayed that they would be united. And he said to, the, uh, said to his father as he prayed that they may all be one. And I don't think that he meant that they would split up into denominations that refused to worship together because of doctrinal divisions. And so the key to it is still Acts 2.42. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. So the question we have to ask, is there somewhere, some body of Christians that still continues steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine? And we believe that there is. And we believe it because that's Christ's promise. This is what he said would happen. He said there's going to be a church. It's going to be uh, regarded. He's going to guard it. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. Jesus prayed for it. And I think that God always answers the prayers of his perfect son. Now, in our study, then, we have established this basic tenet that there is a true church today. 
that it is identifiable. Now, of course, being Baptist, we believe that it's found among Baptist congregations. And I would have to say that not everyone who calls himself a Baptist or uses that name has a true claim to be a church of the Lord Jesus Christ. But the name is a very good starting place. But you have to go beyond the name. You have to go beyond that, and you have to investigate the doctrine that's held by the church. And then neither does the absence of the name mean that a church can't be a true church. Jesus didn't actually name his church. And so there can be a church that's not called a Baptist church. They can be a true church. So what is the identifier of it? It has to be, does it continue steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine? And a church that holds on to the apostles' doctrine is a true church. However, I would also say that as we look over the landscape of Christianity today, that there are not many who are not called Baptist that are actually true churches. And what I'm basing that on is the apostles' doctrine. Again, you have to investigate, but a church that is true is going to be same in its doctrine as I believe that the Berean Baptist Church is, that it's going to hold the same doctrines that we're teaching right here. Well, as I've um, repeated throughout uh, this part of our study, uh, we've looked at history, and there have been people like Baptists who believed like Baptists that stretch all the way back into the first century. That is a historical fact. That is a logical assumption, or not assumption, maybe I'll say. That's a, a logical thing that we can say from Scripture. If what we teach today is true doctrine, then we had to get it from somewhere. And so we've had congregations that believe like this one here all the way back to the time of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, at some point in the past, and I don't know the origin of this, there was someone who took the letters in the name Baptist and used each of those letters to represent a doctrine that we believe. Now, all of our doctrines are not in this Baptist acrostic, but there are enough in it to define what makes us different from other churches. And then from the acrostic, we branch out into the other doctrines that we believe to, to be much more comprehensive in our teaching of what the Bible has to say. Now, some of the doctrines that we hold to are believed by others, but there isn't really anyone who believes all of them comprehensively as we believe them, or at least in the way that uh, we say that, uh, explain them. They don't believe them quite the way that we do. So our study has reached the fourth letter in this acrostic. Thus far, we've been through B, which is biblical authority. Baptists uh, stand for biblical authority. We believe that. We believe the A, which is the autonomy of the local church. We believe in P, which is priesthood of the believer. And then T is two ordinances. The T is two ordinances. The two ordinances are baptism and the Lord's Supper. Now, for an explanation of the difference between a sacrament and an ordinance, I'll have to refer you to the earlier messages. But our practice of the supper, in its final, finer details, definitely separates us from others. Now, we've already been through baptism. We did that in the last two messages. So we're going to look at the Lord's Supper this evening, and it definitely separates us from others. And I, and I say our practice of it, and I don't mean the mechanics that we go through. Uh, the way that I do this when we have the Lord's Supper down here, uh, the way that I do it may be a little bit different. The mechanics of it are different from other Baptist churches and other folks. But I'm not talking about those mechanics. I'm talking about the who should partake of the supper. Who is eligible to come to the Lord's table? What are the restrictions that are placed upon the participants that can come to the Lord's table? 
Well, denominational churches will go part of the way uh, with us on this. None of them go all of the way, which really makes us a small minority of Christians. And there is even disagreement among Baptists on the finer distinctions of this, but it's, it's not, I don't think it's the minor differences that we have that will destroy a church. I don't like the practices of some churches, but the minor differences are, uh, doesn't mean that a church isn't a true church. So this evening we're going to get a start on this subject. We're going to spend a few weeks on it. And I think that I'd like to start with a place that's not on your outline. In fact, we don't even have an outline for tonight, and so you can just kind of follow along with me and think about some of the things that I have to tell you. And what I want to talk to you about tonight, first of all, is the terminology. What do we call it? Well, what is the Lord's Supper? Why do we call it the Lord's Supper? Well, that term is actually taken from Paul's usage in his letter to the Corinthian church. Now, in Acts, uh, the book of Acts, where we're reading now, which is the history of the first century church, we don't actually see this term, the Lord's Supper. But Paul's usage of it in 1 Corinthians shows that early Christians were familiar with this terminology. He says in 1 Corinthians 11, verses 18 through 20, For first of all, when you come together in the church, I hear that there be divisions among you, and I partly believe it. For there must be also heresies among you, that they which are approved may be made manifest among you. When you come together, therefore, into one place, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper. It is not to eat the Lord's Supper. There he's rebuking the church, but he uses this term, the Lord's Supper. And then Paul goes on in the next part of the chapter to tie the Lord's Supper to the observance of the Passover on the night that Jesus was betrayed. In 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three, he said, For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. There he's talking, of course, about the Lord's Supper. I don't think we have to go to the gospel accounts now to read the accounts of how the Lord's Supper was instituted. I think we understand that. We understand that there was preparation for it and that Jesus was observing the Passover with his disciples. It was in the last week of his life. On that night, Judas betrayed him, and then the next day Jesus was crucified. Paul linked all of that observance of the Passover and the supper to the Passover lamb from the Old Testament. He does this in the fifth chapter of 1 Corinthians, where he says, Purge out therefore the, therefore the old leaven, that ye may be a new lump, as ye are unleavened. For even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. So Paul is just telling us here, or letting us know, we, we learn this, that the Lord's Supper is tied to that Passover event. That's what it grew out of the celebration of the Passover. And this shows us that New Testament Christians were very well acquainted with the symbolic meanings of the Lord's Supper. Now generally, we favor this particular terminology, the Lord's Supper. But we're not opposed to substituting other names. For example, a moment ago I mentioned the Lord's Table. That's also a scriptural term. Paul used that in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 21. He said, Ye cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of devils. Ye cannot be partakers of the Lord's table and the table of devils. And then he used a different term in the 16th verse when he called it the communion. He says, The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? 
Obviously, of course, he's speaking of the Lord's Supper. So we don't have any objections to using the term communion. Many times we'll say, well, we're going to observe the communion. Or next week is our time to observe the communion. Now, let me elaborate just a little bit on this term communion. There's a sense in which there is communion among the membership of the church when we come together to celebrate the Lord's Supper. There is a fellowship that takes place in that. Really, there ought not to be a, a tighter bond at any other time than when the church comes together to celebrate the Lord's Supper. But I want you to notice that in 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 16, that the emphasis there is not on the communion that we have with each other, but the communion is with the body and, and the blood of Christ, that we are partakers of His flesh and His blood. So the supper takes a place among us in the fellowship of the church, but the most important thing is not the fellowship that we have with one another as we partake of the supper, but the fellowship that we have with Christ Himself. We come to partake of His body and His blood. Now in the context of this chapter, Paul explains that eating the bread and drinking the juice, that is not for the purpose of the nourishment of the body. And you probably have figured that one out from the quantities that we take, that little bitty cup about this big and little wafer that's, you know, you can barely see it, that uh, that's not for your physical nourishment. That's not the purpose of it. In fact, it was physical nourishment that got the church in trouble. Uh, that's what Paul had to deal with in the 11th chapter when they just made it the wrong kind of a celebration. So it's not about, it's not about bodily nourishment, but it's about that partaking with Christ, to being a part of Him. It's more than physical nourishment. There's this spiritual component to it that we are partaking of Christ. We are in fellowship with Him because of His body and His blood. Now, it's at this point we really have to slow down. And we have to be very careful about what we say because, and be cautious about it because this is the place where people have turned the Lord's Supper into a sacrament. Now, I've explained the Protestant view of the sacrament that says that there is a mystical aspect to the supper that secures the grace of the sacrament to the believer. I don't even trust my ability to fully explain that to you because uh, I have not got a, a, a complete picture in my mind what they're actually trying to say. I can't make total sense of what they mean because they want to avoid saying that the Lord's Supper is necessary for your salvation, but yet they also say that grace is sealed to the believer in the sacrament. That view is an error, I think. But that error does not approach the egregious error of Roman Catholicism. It was Roman, the Roman Catholic error concerning the Lord's Supper that is actually the mother of all types of evil in Catholicism. And um, it's one of the heresies that drove Protestants out of the Roman Catholic Church. Now, Catholics have a, a different term for the supper, which is the grossest of all perversions. They call it the Mass. And with the Mass, there comes two glaring errors. Now, there are many more errors that are in it, but there are two especially that come out of the Mass that are just horrible errors concerning the Word of God. The first one is that they say that the body and blood of Christ are actually present in the bread and the wine. The Roman Catholics teach that at the moment that the priest pronounces the consecration of the elements, that it's magically transformed into the actual flesh and blood of Christ. 
This is their doctrine of transubstantiation. So when the elements are brought in, they are bread and wine. They're normal, bread and wine. But then when the priest says the hocus-pocus, they become the literal substance of flesh and blood. Now, an interesting footnote to the term hocus-pocus, I'm sure every child in here recognizes that as a magical incantation. It actually comes out of the Latin Mass. When the priest holds up the wafer and he says, Hoc es corpus meum, this is my body. Hocus pocus, this is my body. That's when the magical transformation takes place. So he holds up that host, the bread, and he repeats the words, and they teach that the body of Christ is actually present in the Mass, that it's the same body and blood of Jesus. Now, in a normal setting, when we hear things like that, we would laugh. We would say, that's, that's a wildly superstitious thing for people to believe. But the Roman Catholic Church teaches this as gospel truth, that they can transform it. Now, some believe it strongly enough. Some of the Catholics believe it strongly enough. Sometimes they get sick, thinking that they're actually eating human flesh and drinking human blood. I don't actually tend to think it happens too often because I think even the Roman Catholic in his heart knows this can't possibly be true. There is no difference in the taste. Can't see any difference in it. And it's hard, I don't, I don't think he knows that it's true because if he did, he would get sick if he thought that he was eating human flesh and drinking human blood. Well, the question that we ought to ask at this point is where did they ever get such a strange idea? How do they support a doctrine like this? Well, that's what I want to look at next. I want you to take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 6. And we're going to look at the proof text that the Roman Catholic uses um, to say that these elements can be turned into the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. And what we learn from this is that Roman Catholicism, Catholicism is no better at interpreting the words of Jesus than were the wicked Pharisees. John chapter 6, and let's look at verse number 47. John 6, 47. Verily, verily, I say unto you, Jesus speaking, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that believeth on me hath everlasting life. I am that bread of life. Your fathers did eat manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which cometh down from heaven, that a man may eat thereof and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. The Jews therefore strove among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, ye have no life in you. Whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is meat indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood dwelleth in me, and I in him. As the living Father hath sent me, and I live by the Father, so he that eateth me, even he shall live by me. This is that bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers did eat manna and are dead, he that eateth of this bread shall live forever. Now look again at verses 53 and 54, and you see this very, very troubling statement. All of it seems to be very troubling. Jesus said to them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, 
ye have no life in you. Whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Now that statement was so bothersome to the disciples that they were shook up. And they say in verse number 16, this is a hard saying, who can hear it? And they meant, who could believe such a thing? Is this what you're teaching us? We must eat your flesh and literally drink your blood? And it's obvious that they thought the exact thing as the Roman Catholic interpretation. They took this literally, that they were to eat flesh and blood, and that was to be a meal for them. And so what did Jesus do to straighten them out? Well, he explained himself in verse number 63. It is the spirit that quickeneth. The flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. Well, it's critical for us to understand what does he mean when he says the flesh profits nothing. And what he's saying is that eating literal flesh and blood, the literal flesh and blood of Christ, has no value to it. Eternal life doesn't come from eating the flesh of anything and not eating the flesh of the human Christ. And so Jesus explains by saying, I'm speaking to you spiritually. It's the spirit that makes alive, not the eating of my flesh. And then he said specifically, I'm speaking to you of the spiritual. And then he says, the words that I speak are life. And so how are people saved? By hearing and believing the words of Christ, not by literally eating his flesh and his blood. So Jesus got rid of the Roman Catholic interpretation in a hurry. Their confusion is the same as the disciples' confusion until Jesus corrected them. Some of these people still refuse to believe what he said, and verse number 66 says that they wouldn't stay with him. Well, some just can't accept bad interpretations, and in that group falls the Roman Catholics. Now, interestingly, verse 64 says that Jesus knew who the unbelievers were, and I'll tell you that Jesus still knows who the unbelievers are. Now, based on this misinterpretation, then, the Catholic Church teaches that the Mass is essential for eternal life. Well, notwithstanding that Jesus said the flesh profits nothing. Now, if the passage is literal, this is what Jesus is saying in verse number 53. Unless you do this, you have no life in you. And so the Catholic says, you must do this in order to be saved. Well, let's go back to verse number 47. There Jesus says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, listen, He that believeth me hath everlasting life. So Jesus said, faith is the essential thing for eternal life. Now, like dozens of other passages in the New Testament show, it's faith that saves us, not a ritual. So verses 47 and 53 are parallel, that we must partake of Christ's body and blood, and then we have life. We partake of those by faith, That's confirmed in verse number 63. It is the spirit that quickeneth. The flesh profiteth nothing. The words I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. Now it's amazing that Catholicism promotes an interpretation which Jesus directly refutes in the very same passage that they're using. I mean, you don't have to track down 40 other references. Go to many, many different places in the scripture to figure out, is their interpretation of it right? You only have to look in their own proof text. And right there it is. Jesus explains himself. But Satan is adept at fooling people. He wants to promote ritualistic work salvation. And so he has his Antichrist in his white robes. And that Antichrist has duped one billion people worldwide. So Roman Catholics 
take this erroneous interpretation of the Lord's Supper and they inject it into any passage of the New Testament that has to deal with this subject. Well, the Roman Catholic idea has another great error in it, and that is the Mass is a repetition of the sacrifice of Christ. Now, the Roman Catholic Church teaches that the Mass constitutes a real literal sacrifice that's made to God. So each time that they celebrate the Mass, they're offering up the body and the blood of Christ again. They regard it as a sacrifice of a lifeless victim that's offered to God. And so every day, every week, probably um, every hour, somewhere in the world, Christ is being sacrificed, repeatedly sacrificed, when priests believe that they turn bread and wine into the body and blood of Christ. What does the Word of God have to say about that? Well, we look in Hebrews chapter 9 for an answer, where it says, For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us, nor yet that he should offer himself often, as the high priest entereth into the holy place every year with the blood of others, for then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now once, in the end of the world, hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Let me just tell you that the end of the world does not mean on the very last day, when everything ends, when the world ends with a big bang. Not then. The end of the world means the age in which we are living. This is the last stage, the Bible says, that we are living in. That started with the resurrection of Christ. We are now in the last stage. So he says, Christ has appeared in the end of the world. He offered himself one time for sin. And then it says, as it is appointed, verse 27. Well, let's go back to 26 again. For then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself, and as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment. So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. Let me, let me explain where it says without sin unto salvation. The literal rendering of this was without a sin offering unto salvation. So... Hebrews is telling us Christ was crucified one time, never to be crucified again, one time. He took away sin by the sacrifice of himself. He will never appear again as a sin offering. We cannot offer Christ every week because he sacrificed once for our sins. Well, let me add another term here that's used in the supper. Uh, this one is used mostly by Roman Catholics, sometimes by Protestants. They'll use it as well. That is the term Eucharist. That comes from 1 Corinthians verse 11, or chapter 11, verse number 24. And when he had given thanks, he brake it and said, Take eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. Thanks in that verse is the Greek word eucharisto, which is transliterated into Eucharist. Well, let me add a couple of more comments um, before I continue. You may remember in a discussion from a couple of years ago that there are multiple peripheral problems that arise from the belief that a priest can change bread and wine into the body and blood of Christ. Now, one problem is, what do you do? How do you dispose with the leftover body and blood when the Mass is done? What do you do with that? Well, the Catholics had to develop a doctrine for that because it's not in the Bible. 
So they had to develop a doctrine for it. The New Testament doesn't say anything about it. So they came up with a doctrine that says you can't change it back. Once it's been changed into bread and wine, you can't change it back. And so what they do with the leftovers is preserve it, and that's what they take to uh, those that are sick in the hospital and such things as that. Well, you can only imagine the special circumstances that would arise when you're handling literal flesh and blood of Christ. Uh, That's a pretty serious thing. And so in the 13th century, Thomas Aquinas had to address the possibility of what would happen if a mouse crawled up on the Lord's Supper table where the Mass is being served and ate some of the bread. Or what happens if a fly lands on it? Is the mouse eating the body of Christ? Is the fly eating the body of Christ? Well, I suppose they didn't want sanctified mice. And so Aquinas said that if a mouse eats it, it turns back into bread. Now hold on for this. Their doctrine says you can't turn it back. The priest can't turn it back. He can't turn uh, the blood and body back into into actual bread and wine. But the mouse can. So... Evidently, technically, a mouse has more power than the priest or a pope. He can change it, but they can't. Now, can you imagine that theologians sat around and argued over things like this? You have to have the doctrine of the mouse to go along with your doctrine of transubstantiation if you're going to believe in that. Well, another point that I want to make about transubstantiation is that the doctrine was developed in the 11th century, it was 11 centuries, in other words, since the time of Christ before it was developed, it was widely practiced by the end of the 12th century. That was 400 years before the Protestant Reformation. Now, going back in our text of Acts chapter 2, the Scripture says that the church continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. They were unwavering. That's what this means. They're unwavering in doing exactly what the apostles taught them to do. They obeyed everything they were taught to do. Well, does this mean that the church never celebrated the Lord's Supper right? That they didn't do it correctly? Because not until the 11th century had anybody ever turned bread and wine into the body and blood of Christ. That never happened before. And so did the Roman Catholic Church correct the apostles' doctrine? Well, it appears to me that transubstantiation is not the apostles' doctrine. Now, a second problem is that transubstantiation is such a radical departure from the truth, and it definitely teaches that salvation is through a ritual, because they say you can't be saved without it, that by the 11th century, the Roman Catholic Church could have no claim to be considered to be a true church. Now, of course, there are many other problems besides the one we're talking about now, but definitely by the 11th or the 12th century, Uh, the Pope and the Church were at that time and have been since promoting a heretical doctrine of salvation. And so that means, excluding all the other problems that they have, that by the 11th century, the Roman Catholics could not claim to be a true Church because there is no salvation there. They're teaching a wrong way for salvation. Now, bear in mind, I said, this is four centuries before the Protestants came out of the Roman Catholic Church. 400 years. Think about that for a minute. 400 years. Do you know how long that is? Zella hasn't yet lived that long, has she? She's 101 in a couple of weeks. She's three times, four times too short of being there. 400 years I'm talking about before the Protestants came out of the Roman Catholic Church. So the question is, the Roman Catholic Church is not right. 
there's no salvation there. There aren't any Protestants, so they can't claim to be the true church, and salvation is in them. So what do we have? No church, apparently, because everybody fought the Roman Catholic Church. That's the true church, isn't it? But we find they have no, by the 11th century, they have no gospel in the Roman Catholic Church. So where is the church? Christ said the gates of hell are not going to prevail against it. So where is it? There has to be true salvation somewhere. Where is it? It's all over the world. It's all over the world in congregations that believe just like we as Baptists believe today. Teaching the very same things that we teach today. The Lord kept His church alive just as He promised to do. We were the heretics that Roman Catholics tracked down and persecuted and killed because of our faith. The Lord kept His church alive. We practice the doctrines of the apostles just like we have always done. Now let's back up just a little way to that period when the Roman Catholic Church developed the doctrine of transubstantiation. As I said, it's in the 11th century, practiced widely by the 12th century. And in the 12th century, one of the groups that held on to Baptist doctrine was called the Waldenses. In their confession of faith in the year 1120, this is in the beginning of the 12th century, they explained their understanding of the sacraments. Now, quoting directly from their confession, this is in the year 1120. Moreover, we have regarded all the inventions of men as an unspeakable abomination before God, such as festival days and vigils of saints and what is called holy water, the abstaining from flesh on certain days and such things, but above all, the masses." We hold in abhorrence all human inventions as proceeding from Antichrist, which produce distress and are prejudiced to the liberty of the mind. Now, there particularly, they're talking about penances, penances that are opposed by Catholics. We consider the sacraments as signs of holy things or as visible emblems of invisible things. There, they're saying that sacraments are actually ordinances, that they are symbols we regard it as proper and ever necessary that believers use these symbols or visible forms when it can be done, notwithstanding which we believe that believers may be saved without these signs when they have neither place nor opportunity to observe them. We acknowledge no sacraments, and by the word sacraments they've already explained, they mean memorials, they mean ordinances, they mean symbols. We acknowledge no sacraments but baptism and the Lord's Supper. So they have rejected the Roman Catholic idea of the Mass and also rejected the other things that they call sacraments. Now, if you continue reading this particular confession of faith, you'll find an affirmation in it of the Scriptures themselves, that the Scriptures are the final authority, not the church, that the Scriptures give the church authority, not the other way around. That is affirmed in this confession. They also confirm the mediatorial work of Jesus Christ without the intercession of Mary. They reject in this document the bodily assumption of Mary. They said, if you don't know what that is, ask me another time. They reject the bodily assumption. That means they're saying Mary herself is awaiting the resurrection of the dead. Now let me move on to the year 1544. And in that year, the Waldenses made these doctrines even more explicit and they showed through that that there was a church that was existing extraneously to Roman Catholicism and before the Protestant Reformation. So here's what we conclude from this discussion thus far. 
The Lord's Supper is a defining doctrine. It can be twisted, as Roman Catholicism does. It can be twisted to be made an essential part of salvation. And by that, it would prove that anybody who does that cannot be a true church. So the Lord's Supper can become a separating doctrine based upon its perversion to be a justifying doctrine. And then the Lord's Supper may also be a determiner of a true church by showing the proper observance of it is a sign of continuing in the apostles' doctrine and remaining faithful to Acts 2.42. So what we do with the supper, what we actually practice in the supper may indeed show that we are truly an apostolic church. Well, that's where I want to end tonight. Uh, In the next message, we're going to look at the scriptural observance of the supper. That'll be in two weeks. We don't have a Sunday night service next week. But in the next, uh, the next uh, time that we meet on this, in two weeks, we're going to observe the Lord's Supper. And we're going to talk in that sermon prior to the Lord's Supper observance. Who may observe the Supper? Where are we supposed to observe the Supper? Why do we observe the Supper? Now, part of that actually is going to be uh, the next time. And then a, a third message is going to deal more with... Um, who particularly can come to the supper? Why are there restrictions that are placed upon it? But these are things that define us as Baptists. I was talking to uh, Eugene here on the front row earlier today, and one of the things I said to him, you come to Brian Baptist Church, we are an historical Baptist church. By that I mean we hold on to the same doctrines as our forefathers. We haven't changed anything. We're not seeking anything new. If it's new, we don't want it. Uh, We're going back... And practicing the same things as our forefathers taught, which we believe are the same things that the apostles taught. We, we maintain steadfastly the apostles' doctrine. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truths that we learn from your word. We thank the Lord that these things that people confuse and the devil twists and turns and gets people off on the wrong track trying to destroy the doctrine of salvation... That if we study your word through the leadership of the Holy Spirit, that we come to the truth. That we respect the word of God as being the word of God. And we believe that all of it's true. That everything that you want us to know is found in the word. Everything that we need to know about you is found in the word. We don't need a church to invent any doctrines to help explain things to us or do things differently or give us another way of salvation. Your Holy Spirit will lead us into the truth of the revealed word. We thank you, Lord, that you let us study this word. You've given it to us so we can learn about who you are. Thank you for the truth of salvation, that it's not in things that we do, that it's in what Christ has done for us. And we trust him and him alone to save us from our sins. Thank you for this study tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.